Welcome to AJHP Voices, a series of discussions with AJHP authors and interviews focused on contemporary practice issues. AJHP is the official journal of ASHP, and its mission is to advance science, pharmacy practice, and health outcomes. This is Daniel Koba, the Editor-in-Chief of AJHP. Thanks for joining us for this episode of AJHP Voices. Today, we'll be discussing the AJHP special feature, National Trends in Prescription Drug Expenditures and Projections for 2021, which was recently published on AJHP.org. Our guests today are Dr. Eric Tishy, Vice Chair, Pharmacy Supply Solutions at the Mayo Clinic, and Dr. Michelle Weiss, Vice President, Pharmacy Services at UC Health in Cincinnati. Shelley, Eric, welcome. It's good to see you today. Thank you for having us. Same here. So, Eric, let me start with you. The, the drug expenditures forecast has been published annually in AJHP for many years. But before we get into sp- discussion of the specific findings for this year, can you give us an overview of the methods that you use to develop the forecast? Yes. So the forecast starts off by reviewing data from the Acuvia National Sales Perspective. And the Acuvia National Sales Perspective in uh, encompasses nearly 100% of sales that occur in the uh, pharmaceutical space in the United States. We also look at expected approvals by the FDA in the, the year that the paper will be published. And that list is provided to us by IPD Analytics. We have subject matter experts that are part of our author panel that look at those lists and they determine the drugs that are highest impact to the hospital and clinic space, because that's really the target audience of our publication. And we emphasize drugs that are really novel therapies that are going to have the biggest impact in, in the hospital and clinic space. We also do an environmental scan. So we look at things that are going on in the political space, things that are going on in public health in general, just to understand how those things could impact prescription drug expenditures. And then we perform analytic modeling to develop different models of where the projections might go based on previous um, expenditures and trends. And then we make adjustments to those models based on the thoughts of the subject matter experts, taking into account those environmental scans and expected new drug approvals. And then we come up with a consensus around a projection for the next year's expenditures. Got it. So high level, what did you find this year? Well, it was the most volatile year that we've seen in in decades as far as the prescription drug expenditures. And of course, a lot of that's driven by effects of the COVID-19 pandemic. And there were sort of minimal impacts from new drugs being approved through the traditional pathway. We did see very dramatic impact from new drugs that were approved or one specific new drug that was approved through emergency use authorization. And those were some of the the biggest findings. So that the effects of new drugs through the traditional pathways, was there a COVID-19 effect on that? Was the FDA just approving less because of the pandemic? You know, that's a great question, Dan. That was one of the things that we had anticipated in last year's publication was that we thought the FDA would approve fewer drugs. They ended up approving the second highest number of drugs in a single year in in 2020. 
So the FDA was, they did a really great job of adjusting to the pandemic and really kept things moving forward at a, a, a normal clip. And that, I think that was very impressive. And we had not anticipated that they would be so effective. So I think they deserve a lot of credit for that. Interesting. Okay. So Shelly, based on your experiences at the practice level as a pharmacy executive in a big health system as well, I know that you really led the analyses of the COVID-19 effects on the drug expenditures in uh, 2020. You know, what were the overall effects of COVID-19 on drug spending? So when we first got the data back from IQVIA, I mean, we were all like surprised by a reduction of 4.6% in the drug spend for 2020 for um, health systems. And, you know, we had to reflect and really think about the past year to see, well, what were we, what was the climate when we were reviewing the data? Um, so we get the data in middle of January of um, 2021. And we have to think back through what occurred all through 2020. And it was a turbulent year, a lot of chaos. And at the beginning of the pandemic, when the public emergency was um, announced and it was a pandemic and the public health response was to, you know, uh, quarantine people to keep them safe and to prepare our hospitals we were all gearing up for a large number of patients. Our hospitals were um, rescheduling elective cases, encouraging care at home, and being able to have a, as least amount of patient and individual person contact there back in March. So in thinking through that time, we were gearing up to have really sick people coming into the hospital, looking at, well, what are the possible drugs that we might need? And with a virus, we know there aren't usually many therapeutic options and that it's really the, you know, severity of the disease if someone starts to go in multi-system organ failure and how to treat those patients. So back then in March, all the hospitals were ordering as much of their drugs that they think that they would need to care for a critically ill patient and kind of those supportive care. So in March, you know, we were getting data from models to expect what would be a surge from the COVID response. And so we had so many purchases that were happening. And then in certain areas of the country, they experienced sicker patients, but in others, we had empty hospitals, stocks full of drugs, months of more drugs than we normally would have and waiting. So and thinking through um, at the beginning of the pandemic, um, we bought lots of drugs and we would have expected that there would be an increase in expenditures. But then we had where hospitals were at maybe 30% capacity in my area, and we were waiting to see what was going to happen. And so we waited through April, we waited through May, we waited through June, and then it started to say, okay, we're not going to have the surge that we initially anticipated. And we started preparing for a responsible return where they started to have additional patients come back in. So as a response to that, a lot of hospitals started returning the drugs that they purchased and looking to see, well, we're not going to need these drugs. We've learned more about how to care for our patients that have COVID. So there was a return. Um, and then later on in the year, we looked to see, well, what was going to happen with the COVID 
as far as its numbers and then what was the ramifications of patients who delayed care through the rest of 2020. So typically with the IQVIA data, we get one figure for 2020. And when we saw that at minus 4.6% for non-federal hospitals and clinics, we then asked IQV to say, can we get weekly data for 2019 and 2020? Because really through the pandemic, there were changes that were being made on a monthly basis that we wanted to evaluate. And so what we did is we looked at that and looked at the cur- at the comparison week by week from 2019 to 2020 to really see what was going to happen. And so what we saw is that there was a spike in purchases there in that first two weeks of the um, public health emergency. And then things like slowly declined um, in purchases for about three months when it wasn't until we got back to normal purchasing patterns come that July time period when most of the states started relaxing some of their pandemic rules. So we saw that pattern and saw, okay, all right, you know, how did July and the summer go through? Going back to kind of normal um, purchasing patterns compared to the previous year. We then looked to see, well, there was a, a spike that happened, not spike, I would say an increase that happened compared to 2019 at the end of October, beginning in November. And that's when remdesivir went from an emergency use authorized drug to an FDA approved drug and hospitals had to start buying. So then we were in the middle, um, you know, we were in the middle of the pandemic as far as the third surge was coming, where there was really that increase in acutely ill patients and the use of remdesivir that increased that had a, a significant impact on the total dollars for 2020 from that one drug alone. So Shelly, it's it's interesting as you talk about that and sort of the the fact that number one, the there were the data, but then you really took advantage of the the methods that are used for this paper to have a team of subject matter experts who can then reflect on the data and really try to make sense of them. Now, in your in your specific hospital setting and also maybe in other settings where people are using this report. Does this help guide your conversations with the C-suite about what expectations to have and, and planning around drug expenditures for, for example, as we're, you start to look, I guess, at 2022? Does this, does, are the data and that reflection that the team uh, went through, is it helpful to you as a pharmacy executive when you try to explain that aberrant year or those aberrant years to, to your C-suite? Absolutely. So we have a monthly conversation about our drug spend with our finance team, and I go over what are the traditional drivers for that monthly spend. Now, I'm at an academic medical center, so the expensive service lines such as oncology, transplant, um, cardiovascular service lines are typically the drugs that are going to drive our expenses. And so we look at the drug, but then we also look at the cases of patients, our case mix index, in order to say, well, what do we expect to happen in subsequent months and to forecast further quarter by quarter as to how those changes would be. So after we were looking at this data and reflecting on 2020, I made sure to bring this phenomenon back to our finance team and showing Yeah, last year overall 
health systems had a reduction in drug expenses on the acute care side. But when you really take a look at removing that three-ish months worth of data during the time when we were really limiting patient care, our expenses were projecting like we anticipated um, when we were you know, evaluating 2019 data, where we're looking, we were looking at a four to six percent increase on our acute care side. And we saw that in our patient care when we weren't dealing with the majority of empty hospital or um, COVID positive patients. Got it. Yet on the home care, mail order, and retail pharmacy side, you saw the biggest increases in expenditures in 2020. Was there another type of COVID-19 effect there or was there something else going on? No, I think that's directly related to the change in care provided to patients from being in an acute environment to being in the ambulatory environment. So if we could infuse patients at home, we did that at home. If we were going to be able to mail their drugs to their home we were, versus having them come to our sites and pick them up at our retail pharmacies, we were going to do that mail. So I think that that's a direct impact based upon um, COVID and the quarantine effect. Now, I would have anticipated increases anyway with regards to treatment at the home and more mail order. It's been the trend year over year for the past probably five years or so. So I think that patients feel more comfortable um, being treated at home. It's less expensive being at home. So I think that COVID was just a catalyst to have a bigger increase um, in that area as a result. So Eric, is COVID as a catalyst, is it going to have really a long tail there? Is this something with movements such as hospital at home that we're going to see the expenses in the home care and mail order and retail pharmacy sectors? Are we going to continue to see those grow at an impressive rate, do you think? based on just overall changes that may sustain subsequent to the, the pandemic. Yeah, I agree with Shelley that COVID really accelerated a lot of long-term trends. The home care sector has had double-digit increases for several years in a row as far as percentage of increases. And COVID gave us permission to experiment more with that. And it just accelerated some of those long-term trends. So that's part of it. The mail order, a lot of that is driven by specialty pharmacy expenditures and specialty pharmacy drugs continue to grow. So again, I think that sector, it was already continuing to grow and, and that's why it continued. Another important thing to think about when you talk about drug expenditures of health systems is that the section in the paper that focuses on the non-federal hospitals is really focused on acute care. And the way health systems are comprised today is we have hospitals, we have clinics, and we also have mail order pharmacies and sort of dispensing pharmacies in the outpatient sector. And we're kind of a mix of a lot of these different things. So as, as health system executives, we have to explain to our finance leaders, you know, we're not just the hospitals, we're a conglomeration of all of those things. And each health system has a little bit different mix of what it looks like in their organization. And I think that's why a lot of pharmacy executives are saying, well, my expenditures didn't decrease by 5%. It's because we we do sit in multiple of those different spaces. And in Mayo Clinic, we even have a hospital at home program. So we're contributing to that home care. And I think that's 
even for health systems, one of the, the big areas where people are focusing on growth in the future. So, Eric, as the lead author, and this really is a follow-up to, to your comments, as the, the lead author on the article, I imagine that you hear a fair amount from readers about the findings and, and how they actually use it. What do you hear from the readers of the, the article, the, the forecast each year? How are they using it in their individual health systems to inform planning and decision-making? We do hear a lot from the readers, and in fact, one of the biggest comments that we receive is, "Can we have access to the information earlier? And can you give us a, you know, the paper earlier?" And and one of the things that the author team has really worked hard to do is accelerate the time that the paper and the findings are available. I know that the the, the findings are helpful when you're looking at your your sort of current year spending and explaining why it's going the direction it's going. It's also very helpful as was mentioned earlier, and looking at future years. So, you know, what is spending going to look like in 2021 and 2023? I know I'm, I use it that way and, and others do as well. I, I use it that way before I was even an author on this paper. So it is something that gets used. And I think we all, you know, it's one of many inputs that we use at the sort of local level to determine what our expenditures are going to be in the, the coming years. And sometimes we even use this information to help plan services that we're going to be offering. So if there's a new drug that needs to be given in a, a certain setting and we need to ramp up infusion space or something along those lines, th those are parts of the planning discussion that, that do occur. I mean, that's fascinating that it really goes just beyond sort of straight budget planning in terms of this is what we think our our, our drug line is going to look like in the budget, but really much more holistic in terms of, you know, here are opportunities to provide better care through provision of new services around a drug that we see coming down the pike. That's, you know, there's something also interesting in what you said about the COVID effect that I'd just point out. One of the reasons that we were able to get the data out to people a bit sooner this year is a new approach that we've taken with articles to to publish the author's uh, final edited version as the first version of record so that we can try to get important data like this out to 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 readers soon as soon as possible and that that was some a decision that we made as uh, as, as the editors of HHP as we were looking at getting COVID-19 specific information out there but it really benefited um, papers such as the expenditures forecast. So Eric, Shelley already made reference to this in a way um, in mentioning remdesivir and the role that remdesivir played, but any surprises? There's a no, There are a number of top 25 lists in the, the paper. Any surprises on those top 25 lists? Well, one of the things that really shocked me when I read the, the data and I had the first look at it was some of the drugs that are used in acute care you know, I know we had these sort of lockdowns, but there are certain things that I would have expected would have continued at a normal clip. And so I was shocked to see the drop off in use of Alteplase, which is a drug that's used to treat strokes. Strokes don't just go away because a pandemic is occurring. And so that was a piece of information I thought was very surprising. It was fascinating to see the drop in expenditures of some of the oncology drugs that are now facing biosimilar competition. So the uptake of biosimilars for those drugs has occurred much more quickly than we had seen with prior biosimilars. 
So it was surprising to see how all of a sudden we've maybe hit an inflection point where biosimilar uptake is, is occurring more rapidly. And I think there were a couple drugs that people were using because of the pandemic, uh, vasopressin being one of them because of seeing a lot of more patients in the critical care environment, and tocalizumab, which is a drug that I think people were using off-label at the time to deal with some of the inflammatory effects of COVID. Seeing those drugs, uh, vasopressin was a top 10 expenditure in hospitals, and tocalizumab was in the top 25. Tocalizumab wouldn't even normally be a drug that you're typically giving in the acute care setting. So those are three things that I, I thought were, were very fascinating outside of remdesivir. Shelly, anything to add to that? Uh, I agree with um, Eric's comments on, you know, there were those specific drugs that we used for COVID. So remdesivir, tocalizumab, agree on the vasopressin, especially if you were taking care of more of your critically Ill, Ill patients. When I look at the drug spend for 2020 versus the previous year, they're pretty much in the same order um, as far as um, our specific hospitals. It's just a matter of where we started catching up towards the end of 2020 when patients had had delayed care um, or we rescheduled you know, elective cases that we caught up for that year. So overall, I don't think there was much, much changes um, that was that we would not have expected. You know, my my researcher hat, I sort of want to put it on here, um, thinking about something that, Eric, that you said in terms of the expenditures on with Alteplace. And so we know that uh, Shelley made some comments before about just the overall utilization of services in hospitals and health systems uh, at the peak of the pandemic. And we know that one of the areas that was affected was emergency departments were affected, uh, that uh, the, the volume in EDs across the country went down pretty significantly. Is it possible that, um, for example, in terms of providing optimal stroke care, that with the decrease in utilization of EDs, that in fact, that that in effect had some impact on the ultimate expenditures of a drug like Alteplase? I mean, is, is that what we're seeing here possibly? You know, I, I think our data can't confirm that. It is suggestive of, of something along those lines. And, and we do touch on that in the paper that there were these shifts that occurred and people avoided healthcare services and maybe they delayed certain therapies. And are we going to see increases of other things as a consequence later on? And I think this, these types of examples allude to those, those possibilities. Interesting. There's a, there's a, there are a couple of research questions there, aren't there? So you include a list, we talked about top 25 lists, but you include a, li- a list of drugs that may receive FDA approval in 2021. How many of those have been approved six months into the year? I, I guess it's fair to say that aducanumab has received a lot of notice itself, but what have we seen so far um, into the year with that list of forecasted approvals? Yeah, so we're pretty good with our projections. Uh, We're halfway through the year, and about half of those drugs on the list have been approved by the FDA. Aducanumab is probably the most controversial and exciting drug on the list. When we were putting the list together, 
we were very unsure if it would actually be approved. And we knew, though, that if it was approved, it could be a big impact drug. The approval got was delayed actually several times. And so we the, the original review date was earlier. So it could have had uh, a larger potential for impact for 2021 than it will ultimately have because of the later approval. So I think this drug is going to be big in 2022, 2023. And the expenditures for this drug will almost exclusively occur in the hospital, the clinic, and the home care setting. And it has a potential to be a number one drug in those settings in a relatively short time frame. Yet there has been some controversy at the level of the FDA in terms of the strength of the evidence, uh, in terms of the the efficacy of the drug, and even possibly the safety profile, no? Yes, there's definitely controversy with respect to the safety profile, the efficacy. That's part of why it it took as long as it did to, to get the approval of the drug. And then the other sort of thing that amplifies this is the patient population is very large and there is no alternative on the market and the disease itself is very has very poor prognosis and so i think a lot of people look at risk benefit and they say well i'd ra- i'd like to try something so there's a a lot of factors that are coming into play that are making this very um, exciting because it's it's going to be very expensive the data is kind of equivocal, and it's a disease where there's there's a lack of, of options. One of the things I think is very helpful to keep in mind is that there are going to be other therapies in the next couple of years that are going to follow on in this space. So I don't expect that aducanumab itself will be the only drug in this space and just you know dominate 10 years from now. I think we're going to see other drugs that are actually more effective. So similar to hepatitis C, that we had seen in the last decade, I think we're going to see a spike with that drug. And then we're going to see second and third generation drugs that might be more effective. And so it's it's going to be a fascinating drug to follow over the next several years. And it's it's very key for hospitals and clinics because that's where this drug is going to be administered. You know, on that note, Shelley, I think I've heard you mention that UC Health will be a site for use of the drug. What what are you seeing on the ground there in terms of physician and patient demand for aducanumab subsequent to, to its approval? I think that there's an um, definitely an interest um, from patients because of the lack of other therapeutic options. So the main things we're gearing up for initially is how to manage the um, number of patients that would need to come in for the requirements for the diagnostics um, that are needed for identifying if the patient would be a candidate. Um, And then also making sure that the physicians and their follow-up and monitoring um, is going to be able to handle the volume. Um, So we're doing a lot of that from the patient and physician visit perspective initially Um, We're still waiting on some, you know, all of the information about what the requirements are going to be from the FDA for specific monitoring. um, And then also what is the payer response going to be um, for their criteria of what they deem as an appropriate patient to receive um, 
the drug from a medical necessity um, coverage perspective. So we're in the, the you know, infancy of how this drug is going to be used. Um, and so still a lot of information that we need to be, um, you know, become aware of in order to see what the real implications will be. So it seems like as, as you talk about uh, patients who are appropriate to receive it, uh, in ensuring that there's insurance coverage and also the monitoring that needs to occur, it seems like therein is another opportunity for pharmacy enterprises and pharmacists to be really involved in the use of this drug at places like UC Health. Yeah, so I know neurology has been a, uh, is in a, a service line excellence for us here at UC Health, and um, we have pharmacy specialists in those areas um, in order to help improve patient outcomes with use of medications to treat their diseases. So whether it's MS or muscular dystrophy, um, epilepsy, this is just another therapeutic area where our skill set and helping to, you know, manage the safe and effective use of drugs are going to come into play. Yeah. Eric, similar at the Mayo Clinic? Yes, I would agree with Shelley that we're going to see a new type of clinic that um, is going to be formed in a lot of settings, and that's the these neurology clinics because of the, the need for administering these infusions and also the testing that goes along with it. And then as new generations of drugs that are sort of using this mechanism of action come online, I think they're going to follow in that space. So it's a, it's a creation of a whole new sort of focus of administration of drugs. Another area that you focused on in the paper was the effect of some of the recent policy changes from administration to administration related to unapproved drugs at the FDA. What's what's the issue there? Well, almost two decades ago, the FDA created a unapproved drug initiative, and the, the goal was to have sort of more scientific review of drugs that have been on the marketplace sort of prior to the FDA getting involved with reviewing and approving drugs. These are drugs that have generally been used in practice and thought to be effective. And the FDA had found a need to get additional safety data. And they created a process where a manufacturer could submit the data that was needed and get exclusivity for a period of time. And the one unfortunate and maybe unintended effect of this policy was that drugs that had been sort of generic and low cost for a long period of time, all of a sudden experienced these very large spikes in their prices. And when I say large spikes, we're talking about 500%, 1,000%, several thousand percent increases on the, the cost of the drugs. A good example is vasopressin. Um, that drug went through the process and now it's a top eight expenditure in, in hospitals. So the Trump administration had ended the unapproved drug initiative, or they had implemented a policy to end that. Um, the Biden administration reinstated the unapproved drug initiative. And I think the bottom line for uh, health system leaders is that we need to be aware that this is a, a potential source of new and increased expenditures. So if we're using a drug that's not been formally approved by the FDA, and that goes through the process, it could become an expensive drug in the next you know, couple of years. 
And uh, those are things we, we need to anticipate. Got it. And, and that actually is a great segue into another question that I have for you and uh, a topic, uh, Shelley, Eric, that, that you really focus on in the paper. Uh, and that is, you know, what are what should we expect to be the biggest drivers for drug expenditures this year? So we're already experiencing those and and even going into next year. What what are some of those drivers that we should be thinking about? Well, I can I can start us off with this. So new drugs is is always a big one, and we we've talked a little bit about aducanumab. I think that's going to be a little bit slow in 2021. In 2022, it's probably going to be something that we would see in our top 25 expenditures for hospitals and clinics. The other interesting thing is going to be these COVID therapeutics and specifically vaccines when they transition into commercial availability. If hospitals were purchasing those and, and the federal government wasn't providing those at no cost, they would be the number one expenditure drug in the U.S. this year. Influenza vaccines were actually a, a very high expenditure in this past year, and more people are getting the COVID vaccines than the influenza vaccines. And There's two COVID vaccines that you have to get for most of the, the ones that are being given in bulk. So it's going to be fascinating to, to watch that transition into the commercial market. and then. Biosimilars, I think, are starting to have a deflationary effect in some of the specialty pharmacy space. So it's going to be interesting to continue to follow that as, as well. So, Shelley, as you have those monthly conversations with your finance team at UC Health, are those the types of things that, that you're focusing on in terms of what the influencers might be and as 2021 wraps up and you get ready for 2020, 2022? Yeah, and we do have a lot of focus also in our cancer care area, specifically with the newer immunotherapies, because they have a tendency to have um, more and more indications um, in their add-on therapy um, to other traditional chemotherapies. So I think that that's kind of one of the areas from, from our perspective that we have been focusing on, especially you know for an infusion setting perspective. So immunotherapy specifically in cancer. Um, the other twos, um, you know, we mentioned the neurology arena. Um, so really specifically looking at those therapies for infusion. So your okra, um, legumab in particular um, for our settings. Um, and then um, for all of the other monoclonal antibody therapies that are chronic um, treatments, so um, like your eculizumabs and your ultimarises for those really high cost but rare diseases that you would see and that um, have a significant change um, in drug expenses when there's a small number of patients that you're treating. Got it. Got it. Well, that's all we have time for today. I want to thank Eric Tishy and Michelle Weiss for joining us to discuss the AJHP special feature on national trends in prescription drug expenditures and projections for 2021, which was recently published on www.ajhp.org. Please join us here each month for discussions on contemporary practice issues and interviews with AJHP authors. Shelley, Eric, thanks so much. It was great to talk with you today. Thank you, Dan. Thank you for listening to AJHP Voices. 
For more information about AJHP, the premier source for impactful, relevant, and cutting-edge professional and scientific content that drives optimal medication use and health outcomes, please visit AJHP.org.